The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. I think about how in the summer of 2020, we heard a lot about how America was having a reckoning, right? We were having a racial reckoning. We were having all kinds of reckoning here and there all over the place. And I don't think we've actually reckoned with anything <laughs> deeply in a, in, a, in a deep way. Like care work is the work that makes all other work possible. That is Angela Garbus, author of the new book, Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. Angela has been writing about how caring for ourselves and each other is more important than ever. We're taught to like hustle, 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 be productive and to be like efficient. And care work is the opposite of that. The pandemic has exposed that without care, we're lost. Sometimes I just revisit like the early days of the pandemic in my mind and it's such a like, it's a real trip, you know, when we were disinfecting mail and we didn't really understand what was going on. I was literally bleaching the outside of my onions. <laughs> See? <laughs> that was me, that was all of us. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Lexi Diao, in for Martine Powers. It's Saturday, August 6th. Today we're talking with Angela about the essential work of caregiving and why so often that labor falls on women of color. During the pandemic, Angela found herself at home caring for her two daughters, clinically depressed and unable to write. She started wondering, what would happen if all the care workers disappeared? So she wrote an article. It went viral and eventually became the basis for her book. The book examines caretaking as undervalued and overlooked. She makes sense of it through the lens of her own cultural identity as Filipino-American, which is also my cultural identity. I mean, we're both Pinais. We're both Filipino-American. Sure are. Proudly. <laughs> I want to talk about your your latest book is called Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. Tell me about how this book came about. Yeah. Um, at the start of the pandemic, my children were five and two. And Washington State was actually like the first state where we had a positive COVID case and things started to lockdown started. Mm -hmm. And I remember our Governor Jay Inslee was like, uh, everybody stay home for a month. Tonight, I am issuing a stay-home order to fight this virus. This includes a ban on all gatherings and closures of many businesses, unless those businesses are essential to the healthy functioning of our community. I remember, you know, I was reading and hearing about essential workers, um, healthcare workers and sanitation workers, all of whom are absolutely essential. But I remember sitting there being like, what about me? What about uh, parents? What about mothers? Like what we are doing is 
nothing less than essential, right? And, you know, when, when childcare centers closed, you know, people's ability to work really uh, vanished. Like, we were lost as a society. And so that was me just sort of feeling like, wait a second, like, why aren't we talking about care work as essential labor? And, you know, in that context, our daycare preschool, it never fully shut down. It remained open to essential workers. But they were like, if you have a flexible schedule and keep, can keep your kids at home, keep them at home. And I was like, this, no problem. I'm going to keep my girls at home. I was with them for four months straight, like 24-7, with no help outside of my spouse. But he was working full-time. And so in that sense, me, I had like a book deadline, but it was months away, and I didn't get paid for it, and I don't get health insurance through my job. So I was like, sure, you work. Mm. I'll take care of the kids. Like, that seems... It's like it was a very easy decision to make. And I also really felt like the the most important work that I could be doing was not writing an article or making a podcast. It was keeping my kids safe and keeping my community safe. But I also did feel a, a tremendous amount of grief and feeling like I'm no longer a writer. I am simply a caretaker. And as much as I enjoy care work, um, when it's the only thing you do, it can be really uh, depleting. And it was claustrophobic and I was struggling with depression. So if from that place, I was having all of those feelings. And so that was me just sort of feeling like, wait a second, like, why aren't we talking about care work as essential labor? And that's really, you know, what started the book. What do you think about how we view the value of caregiving now? We don't value it. <laughs> we just, we don't. And this is part of why I wrote the book. The pandemic has exposed that without care, we're lost, right? And that for women, we've been telling women that, like, you should, you know, find meaning outside of the home, which is great if people want to do that. But when women go outside the home, domestic labor doesn't go away. Like, this work will never go away. And there's no, like, hack. There's no app. There's no way to sort of, like, skip it. It's so foundational, and I think we've really taken it for granted. And so I, I am hopeful because I do feel like there was like, you know, my article was part of like a wave of articles that were like, women are not OK. America doesn't have a social safety net. America has mothers. Yeah, mothers across the country these days juggling so much and that have had to give up their careers to focus on the needs of their family in many cases. We caught up with a group of moms letting out a collective scream, releasing their pandemic pressures in the process. Check this out. There was like a real moment where we were seeing that, but I fear that we're losing momentum on that. You know, schools opened, childcare centers opened, people are being told to go back to the office. And all of these, you know, successful lean-in type um, feminist, you know, corporate American professional women who were all like in the pandemic, wait a second, how is it that I'm, I'm so successful and yet all of this care work comes down to me? Um, we're back to outsourcing care work. And I, I just fear like we're losing mm -hmm. that. I want to take advantage of this, like to, to the extent that I'm just like, I think more people are tuned into it. And so I see my job as like never shutting up about this. After the break, I talk to Angela about her own family and how it connects to the history of caregiving in the U.S. We'll be right back.
In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. So when I decided to write this book, my editor and I decided that the first half of the book would be a history of caregiving in America. Like, kind of, how did we get to this place, especially in the pandemic? Because we have no real care system in the United States. You know, if you have a child, it's really, you're on your own until age six. We don't guarantee paid leave. We don't guarantee early childhood education, pre-K, affordable childcare. Like, we just, we don't have any of these things. But we were like, how did we get to this place? The majority of childcare workers are women of color who are also mothers, and they're also three times more likely to live in poverty than anyone in any other industry. The median wage for any industry in America is around $20 an hour. For domestic workers and childcare workers, it is the median wage is $12 an hour. And the lowest median wage in the country is for nannies which is $11.60 an hour. You know, so this was my task, was to, like, write a history of how we got here. And I felt so overwhelmed. I was like, I don't know how to tell this story. Like, this is really complicated. And to me, the number one thing that I had, that I was going to have to grapple with was slavery, which was very much, you know, the reason why we accept women of color and Black women specifically working in the home. Wealth was built in this country when Black women were considered property and did domestic work for free. And so I just didn't, I didn't know, like, there's no way to not address that. But I do a lot of personal narrative in my writing. And I was like, this is not my family story. Like, how could I, I could do this with sensitivity, right? But I don't know how exactly I'm going to do it. And then I saw this statistic um, and I should say my mom is a, is a nurse. So the, the statistic was that Philippinex nurses are 4% of the nursing workforce in America, and they are around 34% of COVID-related nursing deaths. Mm. And so when I, <laughs> when I saw that statistic, I was just like, I... I mean, it's just, like, not ever going to, like, leave my mind and my body. And I felt so, like, it was, like, confirmation of something that I had, like, known all my life. Like, and we had seen it in the, like, in black and brown people dying disproportionately of COVID, where it was, like, these lives, the lives of, like, my mother, the lives of, like, the aunties and many loved ones, my children's grandmother, right? Um, Mm. Their lives are considered less valuable. And so I was like, that's when I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to write about. Because the reason why, you know, my mom came over as a nurse was because of American colonialism, right? Like the United States government set up medical schools and nursing schools and they presented it to Philippine people as like, this is how you um, get economic opportunity. 
you know, among themselves, American government officials were like, Filipinos are our little brown brothers. They're backwards and they're dirty and diseased. This is the white man's burden that Rudyard Kipling wrote about. Um, and so they're like, we need to sanitize this population. After World War II, there was a healthcare shortage, a healthcare worker shortage and a nursing shortage. And so they lifted quotas and allowed, quote, highly skilled immigrants, including my parents, to come, to immigrate, to fill those jobs. And um, basically, I was like, I don't think that Philippinex American history is represented enough. Mm -hmm. You know, I've spent my whole life like wanting to read stories about my family and people like us. And I realized, like, oh, yeah, like, I don't have to tell the story of enslaved, of my enslaved ancestors who are not my, not my ancestors. Like, I don't have to tell that story in America because there's many more stories to tell. And in fact, it's, but we're all connected. The experiences are different, but the same forces are at work. I mean, I have to say, and you know, in my family, we're, I mean, except for me, <laughs> there's a handful of us, everybody is, is a nurse or a doctor, and and they all came here at the same time in the same window. And the way, and I imagine um, it might be like this in your family, and the way that the story is told is not like I was here in the United States because I love colonialism. And that's <laughs> like, and, and I, 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 even the idea of bringing up yeah. this to my parents as like, like, did you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> did you know that this is actually the driving forces behind? So it, right. <laughs> it's so interesting to hear you say this. I'm wondering if you've spoken to your parents about it and how they reacted. Oh, yeah. I mean, I interviewed them extensively for the book. Um, and they were like, we thought you were writing about mothering. <laughs> I was like, I am, but we need to talk about heart seller. We need to talk about the colonial mindset. We need to talk about the exploitation of American capitalism and colonialism. And they were like, what? What? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were yeah. like, and you know, the thing that's really hard too is like they... They really like the tidier narrative of like, we came here with nothing and we worked our way up. We pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? Like, it's very destabilizing. I think, you know, like to have your child be like, let's talk about the global socioeconomic forces that defined your life without you realizing it. And that threatened to sort of like take away from all the work you did do, right? Like, it's been really messy. It's just like, you know, they're like, Anak, it's like <laughs> enough, you know, like, it's really like silence is so much better. It's like violence to talk about like all of these things, because I think they just are like, let's just enjoy life. You know, <laughs> like those are like the things that happened in the past. And, you know, I feel like I've spent my whole life growing up in America being like, who am I really, though? Like, I know I'm Filipinx. Like, I, what would my life have been like if I had been raised in the Philippines? What would our life have been like? Like. I don't speak Tagalog. Like, I have guilt about that. Like, and I feel like I've lived my whole life being so grateful to everything that they gave me, but then also feeling like I, the greatest gift they gave me was the ability to to be myself. And uh, it's been hard, but they've been pretty open. And I think it's improved our relationship a lot. And I also, you know, told them, I was like, you know, this is hard for you, but um, I hear a lot from... Panay women, I hear from Filipinx Americans, mm. from first generation people, and like this book and my writing is very helpful to them and they feel very seen by it. And that's something that they have been able to kind of attach onto and, and be proud of. Mm. Well, I think that there is this sense of Asians in America as the model minority and model in the sense of mm -hmm. that we are 
we assimilate and do not take up space. And I want to ask you about this idea of taking up space and like the inconvenience of taking up space (laughs) and how unapologetic you are about that. I think I just always knew growing up like I was different. We were other, like our food was different, my body was different, my way of thinking just seemed different from everyone around me. And I don't know exactly um, why this is. I'm very grateful to baby Angela because I just was like, I I don't want to shrink. I was like, I'm just going to be me. There's a freedom in it that I have found. And in writing this book, I think it was maybe because I was in such a bad place in the pandemic. And I felt like it was so clarifying to me to think about the importance of care work and the importance of my cultural identity, where I felt, I don't think I've ever felt as free writing. I was like, there will be no explanatory commas, like for Tagalog words. I will not describe what Pinak Bet is. Like, Pinak Bet will just be Pinak Bet, right? And I think it's a little bit, metaphorically, it's like taking up space, right? It is not receding behind, like, a comma or a pausing to explain. Um, I feel like I've been explaining myself to white people my whole life, and I'm, I'm kind of done. Yeah, and not having to explain your existence. Yeah, I was just like, I'm just here. This is my existence. And if you know, you know, and like, this is for you. And if you don't, you can look it up. Angela Garvis, thank you so much. Thank you, Lexi. This has been a pleasure. Angela Garbus is a writer and mother. Her most recent book is called Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by me and edited by Maggie Penman and Rena Flores. It was mixed by Rennie Svernofsky. I'm Lexi Diao. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.